0: We are in 1 Samuel, chapter 6. The Lord in his sovereignty and in his peculiar holiness has been ravaging his own people who were called by his name and then the pagan nations, in this case, of the Philistines to accomplish his purposes and his work on earth. The Ark of the Covenant, the hallowed holy Ark, has been captured by the Philistines in their routing God's people, which they were routed because they were in abject rebellion again to the Lord God Almighty. And in his love as a father, he disciplines those whom he loves in order to bring them back to the ways that he knows is going to be so much better for them. Nothing has changed in all the years, centuries, millennia. The continuation of our text from 1 Samuel will, I trust, accentuate that mysterious aspect of God's nature called his holiness. Outside of the Christian church, I will assert that for all the talk of spirituality that there may be by those who don't even pretend to identify with the Bible or a Christian faith, the God of heaven and earth is wildly unknown to them. Solomon says in his Proverbs that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So much for... Oh, but if you just believe it and it's right for you, it is. Contrary to the wisdom of God. By the mainline church, the God of heaven and earth is widely mischaracterized. And mainline churches say, what is the mainline church? I've heard people talk about that or mention that. The mainline church generally refers to the older denominations around that uh, had their origins um, overseas and came to this country by virtue of very godly people, God-fearing individuals. And then, of course, over the years, everything degraded. And now the mainline churches uh, still assume many of the Uh, pretenses of the Christian faith, many of the forms, and yet their hearts are so very far away. And then the God of heaven and earth, even by so-called Bible-believing church, I assert, is misunderstood wildly. And of all of those attributes of God that we could talk about, holiness and sovereignty... I think, are the least known, certainly the least understood. And this morning's text is going to underscore the first of those two, namely the holiness of God and why we should care. I want to resume this morning in First Samuel 6, beginning in verse 16. When the five lords of the Philistines, that is, the leadership of that nation in the particular cities, to which were all, be, uh, all became involved after the ark was captured. They returned to Ekron that day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod. These are the cities of the Philistines that were all involved. One for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite. He struck down, though, referring to God, he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people, 50,070 men, that number is rightly disputed, I'm not going to go into that this morning. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. So the ark has been returned to God's people. They get it. They look in. Some of them look into the ark. And whatever the number is, there is a great, again, elimination of the wayward and the disobedient. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before The Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? You've heard me mention it many, many times that there is this ridiculous mindset, even among Christians, that there is somehow a different God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. And not that he's a distinctly, like a a totally different deity. Within the church, I'm talking about, but no, but obviously the Old Testament is all blood and guts and gloom and doom and travesty and calamity and all of that. And in the New Testament, we get the nice, softer, grace filled God. But we have to remember the purpose of the Old Testament. The purpose of two-thirds of the Bible that was written in anticipation of the incarnation of God himself to bring redemption to mankind. And the purpose of that was precisely to pound and pound and pound and pound and emphasize and underscore over and over and over that God is holy and nobody will flippantly, casually, or by their own design make their way into the entrance of God or worship Him however they see fit or feel or believe in their heart is right. He does not cut any slack when it comes to his nature, his character, and his revelation. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is extremely helpful in a rather concise way to give us a great handle on the Old Testament. So through the Old Testament, we catch these glimpses of God which are often offensive to our sensibilities. What I mean by that is, for example, I remember the first time that I read about Uzzah. And Uzzah will, will come along here if, we're, we're, if I'm around long enough, if we're all around long enough. if The Lord tarries in the sequel to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Let me read just an excerpt from 2 Samuel chapter 6. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Achio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart, and so they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Achio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And no charge for this little editorial comment, but there was the worship team, the instrumentation, and I find it curious that five. Out of five of those instruments listed, three of them, 60% are percussion instruments. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. For what it's worth. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and he took hold of it. Why? Because the oxen nearly upset the ark. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. I'm telling you, the first time I read that, I went, okay, time out. Uzzah was not being presumptuous. He wasn't knowingly or unwittingly being irreverent. He was trying to keep the ark from falling off onto the ground. And I remember my, my, you know, we tend not to use the word anger, my frustration, my confusion. No, I was a little put off by this. I'm like, man, oh, man, I mean, come on, you're the God of heaven, the God of mercy and Grace. In fact, David himself became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so much so that he named that place, as they would often do with significant vents in, in Old Testament history, he named that place Perez-Uzzah, which means the place where God broke forth against Uzzah. Now, when I read something like Nadab and Abihu back in Leviticus 10, I mentioned them, I think, last week. Yes, when I read about their plight, I am sobered by the stringent demands of the Lord required by His holiness. I can at least understand that scenario. They flagrantly, knowingly violated God's direct instructions concerning the offering that they were bringing. But Uzzah, again, was trying to keep the ark from becoming defiled by falling off the ark onto the ground, onto the dirt. And I was trying to, to reason through this theologically in my extreme immaturity in the word at the time. And I thought, well, okay, the little bit that I knew, maybe maybe it's that the ground itself wouldn't defile the ark. And what we think is being dirt, meaning the ark would get dirty and therefore somehow defiled, in a theological context, simply wasn't the case. In fact, you might remember Jesus talking to or dressing down the uh, the Pharisees when they were getting rip-snorting mad about Jesus' disciples who sat down to eat and they ate without washing their hands, and how defiling that was. And Jesus said, "Okay, you know, look, guys, let's get a grip here. Okay, eating without washing your hands may be unsanitary." but it doesn't defile or make dirty one's soul. It's not what goes into the body, Jesus says, that defiles a man. It's what comes out of it. And Jesus wasn't referring there to the physiologic products of digestion. He was talking about the spewing out of ungodliness in thought and word and deed, because those things emanate from a spirit of self-determination. Another word for that is rebellion. So back to Uzzah, why was God so hard on Uzzah, who was just trying to do a good thing? As it turns out, the ark was not being transported in the first place as specifically, meticulously prescribed by God. When he gave them instructions on how to make the ark, you t- remember, might remember the, the, these crazy details that kind of drive you nuts sometimes. He told them to put loops you know, in the ark, and through those loops, these two posts would be put. And the priests, the, the, uh, uh, the Levites, would take, and they would carry the ark by hand, not on some cart, but by hand without touching the ark on these poles. Well, they put the ark in the, in the cart, and you know that was good to go. So that was the first problem. Once again, it came down to the all-too-frequent, what I call the Sinatra syndrome. I did it my way. Yeah. Well, that turns out to be disastrous for Uzzah. Good intentions notwithstanding, God's holiness will not be compromised And if it ever was, then he would no longer be God with a capital G, but he would simply be one among the pantheon of small g false gods who have been created in man's image and likeness. I believe one of the greatest causes of the deterioration of the church around the globe has been the deterioration of a biblical understanding of a biblical concept of holiness by the church. The fact of the matter is we are all, every single one of us, guilty by degree. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, There's none righteous, there's not even one, there's none who understands, there is no one who seeks for God, everyone is turned aside, together they have become useless, there is no one who does good, there's not even one, that is you and me as we stand naked and bare before our redemption. And that is exactly why we need a Savior. Leviticus 11, we read, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. And woe be to those And I'm speaking again of those mainline churches, those wayward churches who pride themselves on casting or portraying an image of a sloppy God to whom holiness no longer matters. Who make it an art, if you will, with great pride of speaking what is not right concerning the Lord it was the sin of Job's friends Job 42 7 the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends why because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has fear of God has been so obliterated by a caricature of God's grace that grace has lost its meaning and its value. God is just too much like one of us. And that caricature, that caricature inspires presumption, not love. That caricature inspires demandingness, not gratefulness. That caricature inspires self-centeredness, not self-sacrifice. So the result in our personal lives is tolerating, or even worse, as it continues toward that end, pursuing... Not just tolerating, but pursuing all manner of ungodliness and idolatry and fornication and lust and theft and wickedness and deceit, thinking that we can do so with impunity. That means without consequence. So the result in our personal lives is reaping those consequences. And disaster to one degree or another results. And what we are witnessing globally is a, is a growing commonplace in Christendom with the signature hallmark of it being the sloppy attitude that worship with the body gathered is optional. It's the most obvious, visible manifestation. And we are seeing it globally. Globally. And on those increasingly rare occasions when we manage to squeeze the pretense of worshiping God with the body of Christ into an every now and again occurrence, in direct defiance of his decrees, contrary to what many Christians try to assert, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. (laughs) I'm not saying you do have to go to church to be a Christian. I'm saying you do have to go to church to be an obedient Christian. And in spite of it all, we nonetheless feel good when we do come on those rare occasions, believing we have done God a favor by making time for him at all. Now, <clears throat> thinking about the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, let's think biblically. Old Testament, God. New Testament, God. Hebrews 13, 8, New Testamental book. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today, and forever. And let me remind you that Jesus did not come into existence on Christmas morning. He is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, ever existing, eternal, without beginning, without end thinking biblically. So it's instructive and it's intentional that it happens to come from the book of Hebrews, which again explains the Old Testament, New Testamental marriage between law and grace, of obedience and blessing, and the superiority of the existing Savior above all things. Meaning there is not one God or aspect of God in the Old Testament, and that's why we see all the blood and the guts and the destruction and the death, and then a different God or aspect of God in the New Testament. The God who snuffed Nadab and Abihu and who broke forth against Uzzah for touching the ark is the same God born in a stable who came to save mankind. When Job is finally confronted by the God of the universe, the Creator uses example after example of Job's utter impotence even against the lowly creatures that God has made. So what chance does Job think he has in standing against the Creator himself? And in Job 41, God has Job right up against the ropes and he's doing a roper-doper on him. Chapter 41 Verse 1, Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? And we don't know exactly who or what Leviathan was, but it was a huge feared sea creature of some sort. Can you draw it out with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope around his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will you play with him as with a bird? Good Leviathan. Or will you bind him for your maidens? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Would you dare lay your hand on him? Oh, if you do remember the battle, you'll not do it again. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares even to arouse him. And then God, with him in the corner, doing the roper-doper on him, throws the knockout punch. Who then, Job, is he that can stand before me? Same question that was put forth by the Beshemites. They see God break forth in his holiness against sinful man. And their question is, who can stand against this holy God? God is unrelenting in his reminding all of us of our impotence, in our impotence, in our weakness, in our inability to sway God, to argue him to our position because he does not and he will not and cannot change. He cannot stand sin still. And he cannot tolerate unholiness, even when it comes from a position of trying to do a good deed. And the goal of it all is to make sure that we understand no one can satisfy God or merit his favor and love. And so, a salvation message, a salvation invitation that is offered without the promise of fire and brimstone, without the knowledge of our deserved condemnation, breeds a very casual RSVP or acceptance to that invitation. the preachers for many many years now wasn't so in the old days they come in they paint some kind of a caricature of god certainly don't want to talk about sin and death and destruction except by passing maybe and condemnation and damnation and eternal fire and suffering and torture we don't want to do that. we just we're going to offer this Jesus now. And they really have no idea, certainly no appreciation of what it is they are being saved from. The clip that we're going to watch right now are two missionaries who went to Papua New Guinea, had to learn the language from scratch of the Mok people, had to learn their ways, had to be there long enough to learn all of those things and just learn touch points that they had in their culture before they ever even start talking to them. About overtly spiritual things. Watch as a living, dynamic, true story illustration of exactly what I am talking about. That little blurb there at the end was that they had applied to at least another mission agency, but he had no formal education. He was in his 40s. His wife had some kind of an illness, don't know what. And so they turned him down. Said he wasn't fit, wasn't qualified. Mark Zook, the missionary that you saw, died four years ago. He said, we never mentioned Jesus Christ until after two months of teaching Old Testament foundational stories they understood what they were being saved from. And it changed their lives. Missionaries could have walked in with a minimal knowledge of the language and said, okay, sit down. We want you to know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you want God to be your friend? Receive Jesus. And that's pretty much what the gospel has been reduced to today. Devoid of his holiness, devoid of his demand for righteousness, for sinless perfection. The writer of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's not an Old Testamental book. That's a New Testament. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Every one of the mission stories that they had, building up to the solution to their sin, conveyed the holiness of God as evidenced by his intolerance of sin. And again, when you understand how hopelessly doomed you are by the time you get to the salvation story, you're hoping for it. You're, you're pleading for it. You're, you're praying that, there's, that there is something Something like that. Because you know that your soul is doomed without it. And so the offer doesn't come as a ho-hum. Hmm, well, Jesus, God is my friend. Sure, hey, why not? It comes as a life and death, an eternal life and death lifesaver. The Mok people understood they were God-damned. We're only used to that in the terms of an expletive. The only proper way to use it is, as I just did, the theological reality that apart from Jesus Christ, we are all God damned. Once they understood jubilant celebration, was the natural response. And I want to make sure that when we leave this morning that this wasn't all cloaked. That is the grace of God in the Old Testament. I've said many times that beginning from the third chapter of Genesis, there are these little foreshadowings that God has a perfect plan, a rescue plan already in place. 700 years before Christmas morning, the prophet Isaiah writes, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. What a picture of being wrapped in the perfection of the Savior as he gives us his salvation, his righteousness and all that rightly belongs to him. 600 years before Christmas, the prophet Habakkuk writes, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. I encourage us always to read the word as regularly as you can, because in it, You go through two-thirds of the Bible, which just pounds on our souls of the holiness of God. And it pounds within us how inadequate and desperate we are apart from him. And so you look at the cross in an entirely new way, a different way, hopefully. I don't know how you cannot. And he did it all for you and me. So give him the morsels, give him the scraps, give him the crumbs of our lives. I don't think so. And I'm not saying that because I'm a preacher and I'm supposed to say those things. I didn't become a preacher till my mid-30s. And we were well on the route, not patting ourselves on the back. I'm merely saying with the Apostle Paul, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let me have you stand. I don't know what your spiritual state is in here this morning. God does. I'm not talking about how long have you been a churchgoer? How long have you had the pretense? It's got nothing to do with it. Remember that the gospel says with the sheep and the goats that on that day, Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you doers of iniquity, for I never knew you. What prefaced that? The people were saying, to whom he said that, the people were saying, Lord, did we not cast out evil spirits in your name and do many mighty miracles in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. Be real this morning before the King of the universe who knows you better than you know you. Pray with me. Father in heaven. I sensed long ago that I outstripped the Apostle Paul of making the claim that I consider myself chief among all sinners. (laughs) Lord, open our eyes to see what it means that you are a sin-hating God still today. And then, let us behold the cross anew and afresh. And our beautiful Jesus, who gave it all for us. I'm not going to ask anyone in here this morning to raise their hand or do anything like that. Because that's not necessary. You know where you stand today by the Holy Spirit. I do ask you this, that if you have been impacted this morning by what you will know is the Holy Spirit, either to come to Christ truly for the first time or just to repent, You don't have to go into a confessional and confess your sins. But confession, the scriptures say, is good for the soul. Let someone know. Let somebody know. Of those decisions, those choices. And by all means, if it is for a first time coming to Christ for salvation, please. Let myself know, let one of our elders know, let one of the pastors know, so that we can help you more pointedly and specifically to become grounded. Go with the power and the peace of God who is abounding in grace and mercy. Amen.